0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Our text this morning is Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray and ask for God's help to understand what he says to us. Blessed are you, Lord of all creation. You spoke in the beginning and all things came to be. You spoke, and your word came to live with us, full of grace and truth. Bless this place where we would now hear your voice. Bless this place where we would hear your story. As we listen, may our ears be tuned to your voice. As the word is spoken, may you speak to us by your spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Acts 17. Picking up in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, uh, fifth grade and below, come up and join me. the <laughs> corner. Uh, are you guys getting ready? Do you already know what you're going to get your parents? Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe you've been working on your phone. That's the things that you want. No. Oh, yeah, uh, okay, yeah. Okay, what are, what are some things on your list? Barbecue. Well, I don't know about you, but I have had a strange experience with Christmas presents. And it happens just about every single year. I, I can remember when I was about your age, I was hoping to get a Hot Wheels racetrack, you know, one of the things that uses these little guys. Uh, it, I really wanted one with the loop for the cars. And, and I can just picture myself with this. I'd be racing all day, every day. I'd be seeing which of my cars was the fastest on the track. I'd see them climb through the loop over and over again. It was be awesome. If only Mom and Dad would get it for me, that, that was really all that I would ever need. And Mom and Dad, they totally came through. Christmas morning, there was, there was a bright orange track there was, I got to see the blur of the car as it went through the loop. It was perfect. I knew I was never going to need another toy. Th- that was it. I just sat and played with that track for what felt like days and months and years. But then something was really strange. M- maybe this has happened to you too toy. I got bored. I got bored with that track. And I started thinking about the next course that I knew I knew was going to be the last that I ever actually did. Have you ever had experience? Yeah. You kind of get bored with the toys and you end the celebrate. Yeah. Isn't it funny how we can get so tired of things that we once were so excited about? Well, what if that experience? It's actually hopeful. What if that experience, uh, our desire for something new and better, is actually God's way of (coughs) drawing us toward Him? Paul seems to be saying something like that in the passage that we just read. The (coughs) people of Athens were always looking for something new because they kind of knew that the old stuff wasn't really working new ideas because the old ideas had not fixed their lives yet. They were bored with those old idols, remember those counterfeit gods that we talked about last week, but because those old gods weren't able to make life new and and but They were looking for something different and something new, and Paul had really good news for them and for you and me. He said that the God who made us for himself came and made himself known to us. Now, he said, you know, we can't treat Jesus, we can't treat this God like our other toys. We, we can't control him, or, and we can't just move on from him if, if he does something that we don't like. But if we turn away from those old things that we were looking for, and we turn to Jesus instead... We're going to find in him what we have always been looking for. Jesus may be old, but he's always new. And his new resurrection life is what we actually need. So let's, this Christmas season, let's remember that what we are looking for isn't really some new toy, some new thing to make us happy. God
1: is glad to give him to us, and we simply trust in him. That's another reason why we call it a student. Believe it. You already know, go in your Bibles to Acts 17. We said our text this morning 16 through 34. Uh, Last Sunday we looked at the first part of this text as, as Paul arrives in Athens after fleeing first from Thessalonica and then from uh, Berea. Uh, and now we find him in Athens uh, uh, proclaiming the, the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus in the resurrection to to those who he found in Athens, who he found uh, to be worshiping false gods, false gods. Idols and his, his heart was was provoked by their idolatry and he and he went into the marketplaces that he might proclaim the gospel to them and as he was there he met some of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and and they brought him to the Areopagus something uh, like the the board of education for the city of Athens this is a a place that uh, while it did not have the political authority it once did it it controlled who had a right to to teach and to pre- preach there in Athens, so they bring him there that they might hear more of what he has to say, and this morning I want us uh, to listen carefully to what he has to say. This last week we we celebrated Thanksgiving, uh, a day that that asks us to to stop and reflect back on, on all that we have to be thankful for, and when we do that we realize that we have a lot to be thankful for. All of us, of course, are, are intimately familiar with the trials and the tribulations of life in this present age. We, none of us are immune to suffering. None of us enjoys a life free of the groaning that, that Paul describes in Romans chapter 8. But even in the midst of our groaning, even in the midst of our suffering, we have much for which we can give thanks. And and I hope that you took time to to do that this past week as we celebrated Thanksgiving together. We can be, uh, as Peter says, rejoicing even as we are grieved by our suffering. But apart from Thanksgiving, how well do we actually do this? Thanksgiving forces us to to stop and reflect and give thanks, But, but far too often throughout the year... We remain blind to the good and focused on the suffering, focused on the pain, focused on the the frustrations of life in this fallen world it is It is the frustrations that seem to grab our attention most of the time, and in that, I think we are something like the men of Athens Luke tells us there at the end of that first paragraph that uh, the Athenians and the foreigners who who lived there with them would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Well that sounds a bit like a slight because it is it's it's not a compliment to the Athenians they are constantly chasing after the new but but we would be wrong to think oh those silly Athenians they're they're nothing like us they're always chasing after the latest Fad, Because the fact of the matter is that much the same thing could be said about most of us. Are we not also always looking for something new? Get on Amazon, begin to look at the books that are sold there, and you'll see hundreds if not thousands of books with the latest ideas about how to improve your life. And if you go onto the internet, you'll find countless blogs that that traffic in the same sort of advice. If you get on inst- uh, social media, you'll you'll see the same thing there. Countless posts with with uh, detailed instructions about how to hack your life, how to finally lose weight, how how to finally get in shape, how to finally overcome shame and fear, how to overcome procrastination and, and be more productive, how to. Get organized or, or declutter your life, how to have a better marriage, how to have better kids, how to have better friends, how to have better work. Again and again and again, we are bombarded with something new, instructions about about how to have a better life. Why? Why is this what, uh, what we are bombarded with daily? Is it not because we're actually looking for something new? We are looking for a better way to do life. Because we know that what we're doing isn't working all that well. Yes, we have much to give thanks for, and we we remember that on Thanksgiving. But we also realize that while we have much to give thanks for, there is much that is not right. And so we are always looking for a better way to to do marriage, or to parent, or to eat, or to exercise, we are we are looking for a better way. It's the it's the nature of life, and it's it's not limited to those outside the church. It's true of us as well. And in this, we are much like the Athenians, looking for something new. And that's the reason that I want us to to look at this speech this morning not as something that teaches us how to talk to others, but I I want us to actually hear this speech as, as something that talks to us usually when i 've heard this text taught it 's almost always about a, a how, how to discern a better way to do evangelism how a better way to engage We, we notice what Paul does here we notice how he how he uh, finds something to to praise in the culture of the athenians then he then he connects with them and then he, he even quotes their poets and he's he's really uh, keen on communicating with them on, on their level in a way that they can understand all that is good, all that is right, all that is, is true. We can learn much here about how to engage and, and evangelize our, our neighbors. But I don't want us to miss the fact that we're like the Athenians too. And this speech is actually for us. Because we... Are constantly looking for something new our hearts are restless our hearts are searching for what we know we do not yet have and we need to hear what Paul has to say so let's let's look more closely at Paul's speech here in the, the second half of our text notice where he begins as he addresses the Athenians he he begins not so much with a uh, with an argument as, as just a, a an assumption What does he say there in verse 24? He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he just begins with this idea that God is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the maker of the world and everything in it. He just assumes that as his starting point. The one true God, the only God who's worthy of worship, is the God who made the heavens and the earth. Anyone less than the Creator is not God. And this is something that we need to remember. This is something that we need to to see. We we know it. We we believe it. We we, we take Genesis seriously. We take the the idea that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We we take that seriously. We believe that God is is the Creator. But we need to remember that the God who is there, the one true and living God, is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the God who, who called into existence that which did not, previously did not exist by the mere word of his power. He spoke, and it was. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He created by the word of his power. There may be lesser powers in the universe that, that need to be accounted for. And, and we recognize the reality of that. There are powers out there that we do not control. There are powers out there that that can inflict suffering and and frustration upon us. We've all been subjected to that. But we must recognize that, that there is a greater power. There is one who is the maker of heaven and earth, and He is God. He is the only one worthy of our Worship. And so we, we are drawn back to this reality that the powers that are out there, the powers that are out there, why, while yes, they are real and why they can sometimes uh, be against us, they are not God. They are not God. And controlling them is not our ultimate hope. Put not your trust in princes, the psalmist said. There is one who is God, he is the maker of heaven and earth. And this one who is the creator, he is Lord. The maker of heaven and earth, the maker of the world and everything in it, he is the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to to refer to God as the Lord? Well, that language of lordship implies both power and authority. The power is what was on full display in his creation. He is the one who, who called into existence the universe. And if by his power he called into existence the universe, then we can know that he he now has the power to control it. He now has the power to, to rule over it. He is the one who holds all things together. He has power. All things exist by his command, by his word. If he takes away the breath of a creature, that creature dies. If he ceases to hold the universe together, it ceases to be held together. He is the all-powerful one, but he, but that language of lordship involves not only power, but also authority. Not only does he have the power, but he has the right to exercise it because he is the one who created the universe. The universe is rightfully his. Not only were we made by him, but we were made for him. And so the creator God is the Lord. He is the one with the right to rule over creation he is the one who made us for himself but at this point Paul goes in a direction that is not immediately obvious to us what does he say he says this creator God who is the Lord of heaven and earth he is not served by human hands now this is not always what the the ancients believed right they believed that, that there were the gods who, who made us, and they made us for themselves so that we might serve them. So Paul tells us that the one true God is, is different. He didn't make us to serve him because he didn't need us to serve him. He didn't need us to, to make him a home. Uh, again, he, he, he doesn't live in, in temples that are made by man. He doesn't, he doesn't need us to make him a home, and he doesn't need us really to provide him with anything because everything is his. He is the God who does whatever He pleases, and He doesn't need you. Now, I remember when I was teaching this doctrine over at the, the local uh, high school, the students did not like this at all. <laughs> this the idea that, that God doesn't need us, it sounds harsh. Right? Well, what do you mean God doesn't need us? We, we associate with us. He doesn't care about us, or he doesn't, he doesn't love us. If He doesn't need us, why would He be interested in us at all? That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, it is, the, it is, the, it is God's independence, it is God's aseity, it is God's separation from us that allows Him to truly love us god has no motivation to to use us or to abuse us because he doesn't need anything from us he's not trying to manipulate us he's not trying to to get us to do for him what he cannot do for himself he is the creator god he is the maker of heaven and earth he can do whatever he pleases and therefore he is free to serve us because it is no risk to him Is it not always true that that we are hesitant to serve because we know the risks? If I give, if I give my time to you, I don't have that time for myself. If I give my resources to you, I don't have those resources for myself. If I give, if I serve, then I'm putting myself at risk. The Creator God never experiences that risk. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He does whatever He does. Pleases. And therefore, he is free. He is free to love. He is free to serve us because he does not need us. And in fact, he does serve us. This is what Paul says next. Not only is he free to serve us because he doesn't need us, but he, he does serve us. In him, we have life and breath and everything. This is what He has given to us. He he has given us life. The very fact that we are alive is a a testimony to His grace. It is His gift to us. He alone has life in Himself. We have life because He has granted it. We have life because He has has given it uh, to us. He made us and He now sustains us. He gives us breath moment by moment. He he keeps us alive. He he holds uh, not only the universe together, but He sustains our very being. And he gives us a life that is full. With life and breath, he has given us everything. As James says, every good and perfect gift is from above. This is the one true God. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the rightful Lord of of everything that has been made. And he delights to serve his creation because he doesn't need it. He isn't dependent upon it. He, He is free simply to to delight in serving that which he has made. And he serves it by giving it life and breath and everything. But notice that the greatest gift that he has given, the greatest gift that he has given to his creation is himself. Again, see what, what Paul says here. He says he has determined mankind's periods and, and boundaries. He has given us life and breath and everything, and he now sovereignly rules over our lives. He, he organizes our lives. Now, there's, there's some debate here about what these periods and, and boundaries are. Is this the, 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 the lines that separate nation from nation? Is this the, uh, the boundaries that, that separate season from, from season? Commentators disagree, and I don't think we really need to know. Whatever Paul is talking about here, the the structure of your life and all that that entails has been organized by God. Where do you find yourself this morning? You are there because God has placed you there. Where do you you find yourself, whether it's in the United States or or, or whether it is in uh, winter? (laughs) Winter. Whatever the boundaries of your life, whatever the the situation of your life, whatever the, the circumstances of your life, God is ruling and overruling for His purposes. And what are His purposes? Why is God sovereign over the life of those whom He has made? He has done it so that we might know Him. That's what Paul says. He, he has made us to know Him. He has he he uh, organized the, the periods and the boundaries of our lives that we should seek after God. That we should know that He is there. We should seek Him. Now, he recognizes that our, our searching is going to be something of a blind groping. Uh, the ESV talks about feeling our way towards God. Older translations use the language of of groping towards God, and certainly the the language of groping is appropriate here. This is the the, the word that is used of the of the Cyclops after he has been blinded as he gropes his way around uh, the cave. It is the groping of a blind man, the groping of a, of someone who does not see very well. Now, why would Paul use that language of, of groping? Well, even before the fall. Man does not have it in himself to to find God unless God wants to be found. We are creatures. We are finite, limited beings. We cannot search God out. We cannot find Him on our own. Even at our best, we we can merely feel our way towards God. And how much more so after the fall? How much more so after uh, we have been tainted by and corrupted by sin? We can can only grope and and, and feel our way towards God. But God has created and now rules over that creation so that we might seek Him and so that in seeking Him we might find Him. God has made Himself knowable. He has made Himself findable. He he has organized our lives. He has organized creation that we might know him as God. If we seek him, we will find him, for he is not far from us. This is what Paul says. He is not far from us. In fact, in him we live and move and, and have our being. And if we will simply search for him, we will find him. The reason that so many today do not know Him is not because He is unknowable, not because, uh, because He is keeping Himself hidden, but because they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This is what the Scriptures teach. We do not grope our ways toward Him. We do not seek Him. In fact, uh, the Scriptures say that in our sin, none of us seeks for Him. We do not know Him, not because He is unknowable, not because He is far off. For He has made Himself known. He has made Himself knowable. And he is near to us. This is the picture of God that Paul wants the Athenians to see. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the rightful Lord of all creation, not dependent upon us for anything, and yet willingly serving us and making himself knowable to us. This is God. This is the one true God. This is the only God who is actually worthy of our worship. And again, there's nothing here that we don't already know. There's nothing in this that we, we didn't learn in Sunday school. We, we know this to be true, but Paul is calling us back to it because how often do we forget it? How often do we forget that this is who God is? How often do we live as if God is not there? How often do we live as if this God is not there? Our attention is is focused upon the powers that be, the the powers that seem to control life in uh, this uh, present age. And we we focus on the ways that we might be able to control those powers, the ways that we might be able to, to turn those powers for our benefit, Maybe that's through, through politics. Maybe that's through economics. Maybe that's through our own personal self-discipline. But whatever the, the mechanism that we look to, we, we are seeking to, to control this life that we might get what we want. what the Athenians were doing. It's what the idols were for. It's why they even had an idol to an unknown God. Just in case there was some power that they weren't aware of, uh, they were going to try to appease it. They were going to try to please it. They were going to try to leverage it to to their benefit. And we do the same today. We We are constantly looking for ways to control this life, to get out of this life what we want. But Paul says it is all foolishness. It is all foolishness. Because if all this is true, we should not think that idolatry works. If God is whom He has described Him to be, we should not think that God is anything like our idols of, of gold and silver, an object that we can control, an object that, that we can contain. It's not how it works. We, we should not think that, that our idols, the things that we've made to, to control the powers that be, we, we should not think that, that those idols can, can somehow control God. We see this even in the way that our, our worship service is, is organized. This morning, we've gathered in the presence of God, have we not? But when we gathered, we invoked His presence. We did not just presume. We, we prayed. We, we had an invocation. We invoked His presence. Why? Because we know that God is free. We know that we do not control Him. We, we invoke His presence boldly. We invoke His presence with confidence. Why? Because He's made a promise. He's made a promise that where his people gather together, there he will be. He will inhabit the praises of his people. But still we invoke his presence because we recognize that he is God and we are not. He is God and we do not control him. How much more should we we carry that mindset out into the world? We do not control God. We... Yeah, I, the, the very uh, structure of idolatry is broken. Idolatry says that, that, that God can be controlled by this idol, that, that if we just put it in the right place, if we just do the right rituals uh, towards the idol, then, then we can make God do what we want. We, we somehow make God subject to ourselves. This is, this is why God forbid the making of, of graven images because graven images gave us the wrong idea that we could control God. That we could we could force his presence. And we could even force his power to be used in, in our for our purposes. But Paul says we should not, if we know who God is, if we know him to be the creator, that we should not think that idolatry works. We should not think that God is anything like our, our gold and, and silver. He's not what we can control. The one true creator, God is Lord of heaven and earth he is the one in control and he will not be controlled by us Where does that leave us what does that leave us if, if idolatry doesn't work whether it's the, the the superstitious idolatry of the athenians or whether it's the more secular idolatry of today if idolatry doesn't work where does it leave us well in one sense it leaves us exposed <laughs> It leaves us exposed because it exposes the the futility of the exhausting, never ending pursuit of a better technique, of a of a better way to to control our our lives. It, it leaves us exposed. It leaves the, the foolishness of of our our thinking exposed. It shows us that that we cannot put ourselves in in God's place. But while it leaves us exposed. It also frees us. It frees us from the exhausting, never-ending pursuit of of better technique. Yes, we may still seek to be wise in the way that we we live. We want to look both ways before we we cross the street. (laughs) We, We want to be wise, but we do not lean on our own understanding. We do not trust our own wisdom, but rather we trust Him. That's where Paul is leading us. The Athenians are always looking for something new. They're always looking for a better way, a better technique to, to get what they want out of life. And what Paul is saying is that if God is God, then what we are called to is, is not the never-ending, exhausting pursuit of better technique, but we are, what we are called to is to stop and to rest and to entrust ourselves to Him, the one true Creator God, the Lord of Heaven, and earth. Yes, we must do the work that He is prepared for us to do. Yes, we must work in the strength that He supplies. But we labor, resting in Him. We labor, trusting Him, entrusting ourselves to Him, and and entrusting our lives to Him. Yes, I want to be a, a good husband. I want to be wise in the way that I, I love my wife. But ultimately, I must entrust my marriage to him. I don't control the outcome. Yes, I want to raise my children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. I want to be a good father. But I entrust the outcome to him. Yes, I want to be a an, an good employee. I want to do my, my work as unto the Lord. But I entrust the outcome him i want to be a good neighbor i want to love well but i must entrust the outcome to him i want to be a good citizen i want to want to fight for good laws and for good rulers i entrust the outcome to him you see it frees us it frees us from the exhausting pursuit of being in control Because He and He alone is the Creator God. This is the humble dependence that we are called to. This is the humble dependence that that Paul is calling the Athenians to. And these, these are the footsteps of faith that we must learn to walk in. We must learn to trust, acknowledging that God is God and giving Him thanks. And everything depends on that. Notice where Paul goes next. He's he's shown them a picture of who God is. And he said, this is who God is, the the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is is Lord of of all things and who now uses His power to serve you. And he has said, therefore, your idolatry is is futile and and foolish. And therefore, it's time to repent. (laughs) It's time to repent because there is coming a day when you will be called to account paul says to the Athenians, god overlooked the the former ignorance of of uh, of humanity he he overlooked the days of idolatry now what does that mean what does it mean to say that god overlooked that it, it, elsewhere we're told in the scriptures that that he can by no means clear the the guilty this doesn't mean that that god did not regard their idolatry as sin but but it means that he had not yet responded to it as it deserved remember the promise that he made after the flood After the flood, he said, I will not again pour out judgment until the end. This is the day of patience. This is the day of God's long suffering. He is overlooking our sin in the sense that he is not yet dealing with it as it deserves. But do not mistake his present patience for indifference. A day is coming, Paul says. A day is coming when all sins will be called to account. And therefore, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day when you need to turn from your ignorance, from your idolatry, back to God, acknowledging Him to be who He is and who He has revealed Himself to be. There is coming a day when all men will be called to account. Now, if we struggle to remember this, in the course of our daily lives. We, we know it, but if we, but if we struggle to remember it, if we struggle to, to let it shape our lives, struggle to, to, to remember that, that how we relate to God now will determine our relationship with Him forever. If we struggle to remember this, what should we do? Paul says, if you struggle to, to live with eternity in view, look at Jesus. For God has given us Jesus as an assurance of that day. What does that mean? How is, how is Jesus an assurance of, of coming judgment? Well, Paul doesn't get the time to explain because uh, as soon as he mentions the resurrection, the, uh, the Athenians cut him off. So we're, we're left to speculate a little bit about, about Paul's logic here. What does Paul mean when he, when he says that Jesus is an assurance of that coming day? I think there's really two ways that we might uh, take that statement. First, Jesus' resurrection is his own day of judgment. The Scriptures refer to it as the day of His vindication or even the day of His justification. When He is raised from the dead, it is because death has no authority to hold Him. On that day, He is declared righteous. He is declared the righteous one. And if He was judged in that way and raised up to to new life, then we can know that there is a day of judgment. His his day of judgment is is a preview of that coming day. But I think there's more than that going on here. I think Paul is is more thinking along the lines of what he says in Romans chapter 1. There in Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that Jesus' resurrection showed him to be the Son of God in power. What does that mean? It means that his resurrection showed him to be the Son of God with the power to save. Even as the author of Hebrews says, by his death and suffering. He became the perfect Savior of sinners. And if He now has the power to save, then that means there will be a day of salvation. On that day, those who have trusted Him will be separated from those who have not. It's the picture that we see in in Matthew 25, the separating of of the sheep and the goats. If He is the Savior with the power to save, then there will be a day when that salvation will be poured out. And it will be a day of life for those who have trusted him. But it will be a day of perishing for those who remain separate from him. And so Jesus' resurrection gives us the assurance that there will be a day of salvation. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of separation. But see this, that Jesus' resurrection also gives us assurance for that day. Not only assures us that that day is coming, it gives us the assurance that on that day we will be able to stand if we are in Him. If we have repented and, and turned to Him in faith, if we have acknowledged our, our tendency towards idolatry, our tendency towards trying to control life ourselves, and if we have turned from that idolatry back to God, acknowledging Him as God and resting in Him alone, then on that day we will not be put to shame. But on that day we will be declared the beloved children of God and we will be invited into the joy of our Father's kingdom. That's the very heart of the gospel. That's what Paul is seeking to proclaim here in Athens. And that's what each and every one of us who is always tempted to strive after something new, that's what we need to hear. We're striving after something new because we know what we're doing isn't working. We know that what we're doing isn't controlling our lives. But may we not be like the Athenians and think that the answer is is just around the corner and a better technique or a better way or or a better skill. No, this life is broken because this life is under the, the curse of God because of sin. And we are not in a position to fix it. We can't do that, but God has. Through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has raised from the dead, God has defeated the death that that poisons this whole creation and he is going to make all things new he will raise up all creation together with christ uniting it under his rule and he has invited you to be an heir of that coming kingdom if you will look not to technique not to 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 better a better way but if you will look to jesus as your savior, if you will rest upon Him, then you will be saved. When the Athenians heard this, some mocked, some pondered, wanting to to hear more, and some believed. And in that, Luke challenges us: How are you going to respond? How will you respond to this gospel that Paul preaches? I thank God that most of us here this morning, we, we have believed, we have received and rested upon Jesus Christ for our salvation. And I, and I hope and pray that hearing Paul's sermon afresh has, has strengthened us to, to renew our resolve to walk in the footsteps of faith, to live as if God is in fact God, to live as his offspring and heirs of his coming kingdom, entrusting our lives to him in the meantime. But if you are here this morning and you have never received and rested upon Jesus Christ for salvation, then you need to hear Paul say that even now God is calling you to repentance. Even now God is calling you to acknowledge your arrogant dependence upon yourself, your arrogant, exhausting pursuit of a better way. To give it up and to entrust yourself to Him, acknowledging that only in Jesus Christ, only by His death and resurrection, Can you have hope of everlasting life in the coming kingdom? That's what Jesus is calling you to. What Paul is calling you to. Called to repentance. Called to believe that through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, you can have new life both now and forevermore. And because such a hope is offered out to all of us, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for this sermon. We thank you for this gospel. Father, give us ears to hear it, we pray. Give us ears to to hear what what Paul is saying to us, that, that we might see you for who you are, that we might acknowledge you for who you are, that we might give up the idolatrous pursuit of controlling our own lives and that we might entrust ourselves to you, receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, that we might know him now and that we might know him for all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name, and for his name's sake, amen.